0: Welcome to Plato's Pod, where we engage in a group discussion on selections from the complete works of Plato, the philosopher and geometer who wrote nearly 2,400 years ago. Today is December 3, 2023, and I'm your host, James Myers. It's an honour to welcome in discussion members of the Toronto, Calgary and Chicago philosophy meetup groups. Whether you have been with us before or are here for the first time, whether you have experience with or are new to Plato's works, I encourage you to add your voice to our dialogue. As a quick note before we begin, I want to let everyone know that Plato's Pod podcast is now available on YouTube, in voice only. Also, as some of you know, I published The Quantum Record, which is a free online monthly journal that explores our philosophy of technology by featuring recent developments in science. The latest edition was released last week, and you can find it at thequantumrecord.com. So today we're revisiting Plato's short dialogue The Critias, which ends the trilogy beginning with The Republic, which we covered in season two, followed by the Timaeus, which we just finished reviewing in four episodes. The characters in the three dialogues are now in their second day of discussion, and in this dialogue the character Critias takes over from Timaeus, who has provided a lengthy description of the creation of our universe, which he said is spherical. Critias proceeds to expand on the history of Atlantis, which appeared at the beginning of the Timaeus, But at the end, leaves the reader in suspense as to the words of the god Zeus. Although Atlantis had existed for a long time in what appeared to have been near paradise conditions, Zeus vowed to punish the fabulously wealthy city for the discord and disharmony into which it had fallen. Our discussion today offers the opportunity to touch on all parts of Plato's trilogy and to draw out their common themes. To contribute your thoughts, please use the raise hands feature in Zoom, and for everyone's benefit, please relate your comments and opinions to Plato's text. So that everyone has a chance to speak, I'll call on you in the order that hands are raised, using first name only. Once we finish recording in two hours, I invite anyone who wishes to remain online for Plato's Cafe, a casual half-hour discussion on Plato or philosophy in general. To help frame our discussion today, the notes I posted to the shared drive linked to the event notice on meetup.com arrange the Critias in three themes. The first of these is the theme of memory, which plays throughout the dialogue, and specifically Plato's presentation of memory as a function of harmonics and the resulting disharmony that ensues when a civilization like Atlantis pursues material wealth. The second theme focuses on Critias' description of the constitutional order of Atlantis that, as the Atlanteans' memories of their divine origin faded over time, became rigid and forced the population to adhere to ancient conceptions of justice. The third theme consists of the question which Critias begs at the end of the dialogue can any mortal know the mind of a god? These three themes seem to speak not only to the ancient civilization of Atlantis, which perished in a great earthquake 9,000 years before Plato's writing, but to our modern civilizations. Like the Atlanteans, we possess powerful technology and great material wealth, and yet our political constitutions and concepts of justice remain rooted in the past and are proving incapable of maintaining harmony. The particular challenge in our case is the same that Critias sets out at the beginning of the dialogue. As he explains the difficulty of representing human activity, namely opinion. Opinion is on the lower end of Plato's divided line of knowledge in the Republic, and with today's social media technology, opinions are inflamed around the globe at the speed of light with little time for reflection. This is at least how I see the very pressing relevance of the dialogue we'll discuss today, and I'm interested to know if there are other interpretations. So let's dive into the dialogue with a few lines that appear at 108 d which I have here on the screen and that I thought helped to draw together the key ideas from the trilogy of dialogues. In these words, we find uncertainty, which Timaeus said is unavoidable in our spherical universe, and which also appears in the divided line of knowledge from the Republic. And we see an appeal to memory, which is central to the Critias, and a particular challenge in our shifting opinions over time. So let me just read this bit here. So this is Critias talking, and... What he's talking about is there's an order of speakers. So in the previous day, Socrates and other speakers had talked about the Republic, that lengthy dialogue. It was followed by Timaeus, uh, which we covered in four sessions, who talked about the creation of the universe in another lengthy dialogue. And so Critias is next in the speakers. So this is the second day of speaking. Critias is next. And then he's talking here to Hermocrates, who is going to come after Critias. And he says... Dear Hermocrates, you stand last in rank, but since there is someone standing in front of you, you are still confident. That courage is needed, you will discover yourself, when you take my place. But I must pay attention to your exhortation and encouragement, and, in addition to the gods you just named, invoke the other gods and make a special prayer to Mnemosyne. And Mnemosyne is the goddess of knowledge, uh, sorry, it's the goddess of uh, memory. The success or failure of just about everything that is most important in our speech lies in the lap of this goddess. For if we can sufficiently recall and relate what was said long ago by the priests and brought here to Athens by Solon, you, the audience in our theater, will find, I am confident, that we have put on a worthy performance and acquitted ourselves of our task. So much said, now we must act. Let us delay no more. So I kind of like this opening part because it it does put us in this kind of theatrical setting. And this idea of representation of human activity, you know, it, it's almost as if we are actors on a stage of space and time, and I kind of like that theatrical presentation or representation, um, which Critias says is difficult. Anytime you represent human behavior, it's difficult because humans operate according to opinion often, uh, and opinions differ. That's the challenge. And I think here in this section, you know, the the idea of confidence brings out. The, the nature of uncertainty in in the realm in which we operate in this realm of becoming. So the, there's a question of confidence, and the idea too that the confidence is greater when you have other people who have preceded you and you can build on their ideas. So that confidence increases. And so the the word confident is me- uh, mentioned here twice. So um, just wondering if there's any thoughts about this particular section. Uh, opening and then you know we'll go to the idea of memory which is evoked in this section here by the idea that uh, they want to make a special prayer to Demosyne the, the goddess of memory any ideas about the importance of memory in this and, and again that theme of Atlantis uh, you know that was brought up at the beginning of the Timaeus and is now again being brought up here Steve your thoughts
1: I was thinking about the uh, mnemonic mnemonics also thinking it up in sort of meta context of um the, all the dialogues and what they were do had to do back then. everything was uh, oral and uh you you had to have these uh, mnemonics available so everything was dependent on the on the goddess of mnemonics uh in order to memorize the you know, the, what was being said. So, you know, everything was key to that. So if you look at it from a, uh, you know, there's the uh, Canadian philosopher, former Canadian philosopher who died, Marshall McLuhan, who talks about the uh, medium is the message. And you can see how that society was an oral society. So you had to have things like stories, colorful stories like Atlantis, in order to uh, and speak in poetic passages and harmonies, where it makes it easier to memorize. All those things were important for for that society, and that was the medium for the, which they were able to do it to uh, communicate and and keep these ideas alive and pass them on to people, like you were saying. So once the uh, printing press was invented. Then you see that there was a a sort of smashing of the memory palace or the need. The memory palace was a a methodology for uh, memorizing. You would each room or each something in a cookie jar in the kitchen, you would, you know, remember uh, one thing and and you use the whole memory palace as a mnemonic to help memorize. uh, Just like the oral uh, traditions here, Uh, they would use the poetic and the metered uh, response. So I just think it's it shows that it's a a, a different uh, importance that they gave to the oral representations, you know, which is not necessarily uh, the case for us because we we don't need to memorize things in that nature. We don't have to, you know keep an, a list and and the same thing where you would have heuristics where you you summarize things under you know, all these attributes under a God's name. So there's no need to do that any longer because we have access to information. So we're able to, you know, uh, use our thinking and and uh, intellectual uh, activities. You know, we could use other methods because we have that uh, already behind us. Thanks. Mm-hmm.
0: And thanks for the observation. I think that's very helpful to place it in the past there, where memory was very important because. There wasn't the printing press and there wasn't the internet as we have now today. And I guess those are great memory aids for us, but maybe they present challenges as well in that we can't necessarily trust everything we see in print or on the screen. And maybe that's, you know, it reminds me of um, the Phaedrus and the famous discussion between Thamus and Thuth, Thuth the, uh, the God of writing and the statement that writing is a device for forgetfulness. So it's not that writing is always bad. It's just that if we rely on what's written as opposed to our memory, uh, it can lead us down the wrong path sometime. But I, I think you you laid out the, that important progression of the memory from the oral tradition to the printing press, and then now the internet. So um, yeah, it's, it, it was definitely important then. Uh, and it's interesting... You know that they could remember so much it it seems that uh, that they held so much in their heads you know these great long stories that they were able to go on and recount just from memory so um something that we couldn't do today i don't think so as you said we have access to a lot of information at our fingertips so thanks and uh darren
2: hey everyone i don't have that much to say about this just um i think it is interesting that critias here Sounds almost as cautious as Timaeus in the previous dialogue, you know, because of Timaeus's constant warnings like throughout, it might have happened more than 10 times, <laughs> sprinkled throughout that dialogue about he's about how he's giving a likely account. So, you know, don't think it's like more than that, or at least it's up to our judgment that <laughs> if it if it's any more than a likely account. And here he has before he dives into his speech, he gives us all this preamble. And I swear. When Socrates jumps in. He sounds even a bit impatient with all this preamble. He's like, let's get to it. But that, that's my <laughs> reading of what he's doing. Um, yeah, and, and and I guess it's um I can't see if we're gonna get to this later, but I guess I'll just bring up quickly that um okay, you are okay. So I see you just move the screen. Okay, yeah, I I was gonna say that it's also tied in with this interesting reflection on representation and how were fooled by or were too easily taken by certain kinds of uh, representations of as opposed to others. So I feel like this warning or this cautiousness is tied in with that. It is a warning for us, not just him, because he might offend the gods. So, <laughs> um. So anyway, yeah, I'll just leave it at that since we're we're gonna get to it later. Yeah.
0: Okay. Yeah, that, that's great. And again, you you highlighted the difficulty of representation, which is necessary in this realm of becoming in which we physically operate. Uh, that's always changing, and so. There's no perfect knowledge of anything, and so we always have to make these representations which can contain errors or differences, and that's why, as you said, uh, Timaeus said that he was only able to give a likely account of the creation of the universe rather than an exact account, I guess. So um, interesting observation there. And maybe I'll just read this bit and we'll go to Klim, but it just um, on the subject of memory, this very short bit at 106b, which really makes me think that memory involves a bit of harmonics Um, so he says here now i offer my prayer to that god who came to be long ago in reality but who has now just been created in my words the prayer is that he grant the preservation of all that has been spoken properly but that he will impose a proper penalty if we have despite our best intentions spoken any discordant note for the musician who strikes the wrong note the proper penalty is to bring him back into harmony To assure then that in the future we will speak as we should concerning the origin of the gods, we pray that he will grant the best and most perfect remedy, understanding. I just thought that was an interesting little bit just to expand that idea of memory there and the nature of understanding, which when there is uncertainty and questions of confidence, I think that's a uniquely human property that allows us to appreciate that None of us is perfect, and we all make mistakes. And so, this understanding is kind of necessary in this human realm. Um, so, anyway, Klim, your thoughts?
3: Yes, uh, and to that idea of accuracy and uh, you know being able to um, represent a certain or give a certain accurate account of certain things, maybe of certain truths, there is this ring of almost like a like a sacred liturgy or a or, or write, like a theatrical performance or, or action in there, that, that's where that confidence of that that's being mentioned is probably, you know, confidence of being on stage and being, you know, like a true actor who uh, conveys certain truths maybe. So it looks like they're, they're, you know, they're really taking what they're doing pretty seriously and maybe they are, you know, you know, kind of giving the respects to their, their times because the theater was, you know, was a big thing back then. It had almost a sacred character to it. And so they're following some kind of tradition, right? And certain practice or certain rules in how the discussion follows and, and the, I guess there's certain attitudes that they assume to give certain types of accounts. I think there's this character Maybe of uh, of like a sacredness, and performance, and feeling the responsibility for what they're doing.
0: Mm -hmm. And responsibility is an interesting way of putting it in terms of that question of confidence, and in particular because if they're kind of in this theatrical uh, setting, you know, there's a bunch of them sitting around talking about things. So I guess it's a theater of a small group, but you know, in larger theaters, I guess to the extent that they were conveying knowledge. Or what they think to be knowledge, there is an, a special responsibility in that case um, when knowledge comes into question. So it's not just conveying necessarily legends or make-believe sort of situations, but you know they're actually purporting to portray knowledge, and so we have to be thinking maybe of the divided line of knowledge from the Republic, in which there's four grades of knowledge. It starts at belief goes to opinion, then knowledge, then wisdom. And so somewhere they're on that divided line, but they have to be careful about that. So Um, let me go on and read another bit here. This is from 107b to 108a, and this is on the difficulties of representation. Uh, So again, you're recalling what Taimea said about the realm of becoming that our physical bodies occupy, our minds are in the realm of being, which is kind of permanent and timeless, but our bodies are in this ever-changing realm of becoming, and so these representations are necessary. So Critias says, It is easier, Timaeus, for someone to give the impression that he is a successful speaker when he speaks of gods to an audience of mortals. The audience's lack of experience and sheer ignorance concerning a subject they can never know for certain provide the would-be speaker with great eloquence. We know how we stand when it comes to our knowledge of the gods. To make my meaning plainer, let me ask you to follow me in this illustration. It is inevitable, I suppose, that everything we have all said is a kind of representation and attempted likeness. Let us consider the graphic art of a painter that has as its object the bodies of both gods and men, and the relative ease and difficulty involved in the painter's convincing his viewers that he has adequately represented the objects of his art. We will observe first that we are satisfied if an artist is able to represent, even to some small extent, the earth and the mountains and rivers and forests and all of heaven and the bodies that exist and move within it and render their likeness. And next that since we have no precise knowledge of such things, we do not examine these paintings too closely or find fault with them, but we are content to accept an art of suggestion and illusion for such things, as vague and deceptive as this art is. But when a painter attempts to create a likeness of our bodies, we are quick to spot any defect. And because of our familiarity and lifelong knowledge, we prove harsh critics of the painter who does not fully reproduce every detail. We must view the case of speeches as precisely the same. We embrace what is said about the heavens and all the things divine with enthusiasm, even when what is said is quite implausible. But we are nice critics of what is said of mortals and human beings. Now, with these reflections in mind, which I have offered for the present occasion, if we are unable to speak fully and fittingly in representing our theme, we deserve your sympathy. You must realize that human life is no easy subject for representation, but it is rather one of great difficulty if we are to satisfy people's opinions. I wanted to remind you of this, Socrates, to make my plea not for less, but for greater sympathy and understanding as you listen to what I am about to say. If you find that I made a just claim on this favor, grant it with goodwill. And this, I think, really picks up on that part that I read at the beginning in terms of this need for sympathy and goodwill towards each other, and the statement by Critias that the difficulty of representing human life and actions is satisfying people's opinions. I guess if we live in this realm of uncertainty, we all have opinions and opinions differ. So, the idea of memory, I guess, is being discussed here. It's been introduced in the short part that I read at 106B kind of as a function of harmony, making sure that I guess we think of a computer kind of memory that input equals output, you know, that what goes in comes out. Uh, maybe that's this kind of function of harmony. But I think. There's an important point that's being made here in that when we discuss the gods, we cannot have knowledge of the gods. The gods are living in this timeless realm of being to which we have no access. And so he makes an important point here that when people talk about the gods, they embrace what is said about the heavens and the things divine with enthusiasm, uh, because it's maybe more where the imagination comes into involvement. And I think that may have something to do with the end of this dialogue. So the end of this dialogue ends in a very curious way, and it's one of the questions that I wanted to address. And, you know, some people say that they think that Plato just failed to end the dialogue properly. But, uh, you know, the ending of the dialogue, which we'll talk about a little bit later in this session, uh, says that Zeus was about to punish the people of Atlantis. And when he had gathered the gods together, he said dot, 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 and the dialogue ends. So Critias does not tell us what Zeus said. And maybe that's because no one can know what Zeus said. So thoughts about that, Clem, and then Darren.
3: Just kind of uh, follow on what I said. I, I may be going on the wrong direction there, but I think there's this this whole idea of theater it uh, you know is worthy of some consideration there because then maybe that's their tool or, or means of accessing the the connection to that realm of uh, of gods and and because it's all it's all about ritual it's ritualistic and you know the Platonists are kind of following the Pythagorean tradition and that's you know regarded as highly mystical group of people so they may have they may bring that, the worldview with them. And that's why maybe they kind of keep it, they keep it logical, but they also bring with them this, this whole entourage of, you know, being able to access those realms, right? Because how can you talk about gods? How can you expose all that, you know, give, give this whole complete picture of the, the, you know, the metaphysical being, you know, down to the, from everything from sameness to, to nothingness without having some kind of access and, you know, maybe this is where the theater is their tool to kind of invoke those things. And they take the responsibility for, you know, bringing this world, like enacting that world in a way, you know, through, through the means of words.
0: Interesting. You mentioned the word ritual, which I think is, it's actually in the next part that I wanted to read close to the end of the dialogue that talks about some of the rituals that the people of Atlantis adopted. So that's something to keep in mind with this kind of theater concept that we're working with. I think that's a a useful analogy, I guess. So thanks for that. And we'll go to Darren and then Steve.
2: Uh, So those are really interesting connections, James, and really interesting thoughts there. And something I, I was considering, too, And I'm looking forward to discussing this mysterious ending. (laughs) I'm sure you have lots of great things to say there. Um, So I'm just going to focus on this specific thing for now, because I have so many thoughts about the ending. I don't want to get there yet. I'm sure you have lots of great quotes um, to supply us before we get there. Um, So regarding just this part here, I think it's about like he's reflecting before he he, before he dash into his speech he's sort of again giving these warnings and he's reflecting a bit of representations and their danger because he compares it right to if it's a representation of something like mortal and real then you know people are extremely critical because they have their own experience to compare it to but if it's about you know the gods or something you know really ancient then they become very enthusiastic about it as you said james like maybe it's, it's it's like take it as a fantasy or something but it's also because they have no like nothing to compare it to so in a way you can't really blame people <laughs> um like they can't be critical of it so they just sort of accept it with these enthusiasm it's this wonderful story and i think part of the danger is that like the dot 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 thing at the very end of this dialogue it might be that like no one can know truly what the gods think or say so there's that danger we just don't want to give people that impression that we do know but I guess my concern with like I, I think that might be part of the uh, explanation for the ending and what's going on with this connection but I wonder because in many of these other dialogues in fact in the previous dialogue to me yes, we see a lot of what the gods are doing right we're putting we're, we're saying a lot about the gods actually so yeah. but so I wonder actually if um The connection is not so much that we shouldn't say anything because in so many of the other dialogues, so so much is said about what the gods, despite giving, I mean, they do give warnings, right? But then they sort of plow through those warnings and start saying all these things. Um, So I wonder if it's because not so much that we can't know as in at that particular moment in this dialogue where it cuts off, it might be especially dangerous to say because of how people are not critical of stories about the gods. And I'll I'll just point out here that like where it leaves off. I think a lot of people agree with me. It's like literally the most exciting part of the dialogue. It's like the dialogue is finally getting good. We're done with all this description of like the geography and all that. (laughs) And finally, like there's some action and then it stops right there, which is so frustrating. (laughs) It might be because given how, portentous like from the very beginning of Timaeus to now we, we've been wanting to get finally get to the story and it's been building up and building up and it's made up of something really important I mean it's not just about the fall of Atlantis it's about the fall downfall of 9,000 years before this Athens uh, present Athens of the really ancient Athens and how uh, the great civilization they had so maybe the danger here is because there's always a danger people might might be uncritical of these myths but maybe there was just special danger here because like it was finally getting good and so like all of this preamble here is actually plato flagging that <laughs> we might not get the get to the good stuff because there's a danger that people might make it out to be uh more than it is so there's a bit of a self-reflexive moment here where although plato is in the sort of a business of creating myths in a way at least how people take them he he must be cognizant of that but there was just a special danger at that particular moment because like imagine imagine we did have the rest of this we know what zeus said like imagine what people would like it would become this like it would probably become a new myth (laughs) and plato doesn't maybe doesn't want that plato wants always to keep us wondering and thinking right that's why all these dialogues end in aporia so it's it's too dangerous for him to actually put words in Zeus's mouth there anyway i'll stop
0: thanks That's good, actually. And actually, Plato is relating a myth or legend, at least, with Atlantis. So, in Timaeus, Plato revealed knowledge of the only five regular solids in the universe. And, you know, that was a huge revelation. And now, in, well, both in Timaeus and Critias, uh, Plato also reveals the story of Atlantis. So, we're left to wonder whether Atlantis actually existed. And there are people out now searching like you spend their entire lives searching for atlantis and you know the question is did it exist well if it existed then i think there's some important things here that we can maybe learn from atlantis um so yeah you you talked about you know dangers of putting words in the god's mouth which people could take one way or another depending on their opinions and you know certainly there are people who go around these days who say god wants this god wants that I mean, how do they know what God wants? You know, so this is this is a real question. How do we know the mind of a God? How do we know the words of a God? Um, interesting too, that you talked about comparison. and so when we have knowledge of something, it's because we can compare it to something else, but we have nothing to compare gods to. And so knowledge of the gods is, maybe, as you said, more a, a question of engaging in some sort of fantasy that we would like to uh, engage in. And then that, tells us what we think the gods are doing, but we don't know. So we have to be careful about that in that we don't have knowledge. We're not engaging in knowledge. We cannot have knowledge of that. So the idea of comparison, I think, is is a good one. And it makes me think of the Phaedo in which Socrates said that everything comes to be in an opposites. And so the fact that everything comes to be in opposites means that we always have a point of comparison. Like If one thing is this, it is not the opposite so we always have something to compare to in our knowledge and I think that's maybe an important point about the nature of knowledge so I think that was helpful and then you raised the real concern I guess that you know Timaeus has said a lot about the gods in uh, or at least the actions of the gods I guess maybe not necessarily the words of the gods but the actions of the gods in the second dialogue in this trilogy but I think you know, we have to remember that Tamiya said that he was only giving a likely account. He could not give an exact account. He was giving a likely account. So I think that's the key part there. So we have to keep that in mind. So yeah, that's great. Some really good thoughts there. And we'll go to Steve.
1: So um, I know we're not talking about the ending, although talked a lot about it, but I can't, I, I can't make any uh, presuppositions about it because I think it's just happened to be, you know, we just don't have it. So making, you know, ideas about what it might mean and could mean that it's cut off there, you know, but as, as we said, we'll get to that later. Uh, but I still think that this, uh, the line that you have underlined and bolded uh, near the, uh, what you've read to be embraced, what is said about the heavens and things divine with enthusiasm. I still think the the whole issue here is that they're using uh, heuristics and um, mnemonics in order to help people. They're telling a story. You know, they're not trying to in in part, you know, see what the gods are thinking. The gods are a story. That uh, Plato is the author. He's writing a story. You know, and he's retelling stories of other people and changing it from the past. But it's a story. And the reason they use the gods is because again, this is like there's no light at night. You know, you have to only have firelight. You have no written material, you know, if people are going to remember it. It's much, we embrace what is said about the heavens and things divine with enthusiasm. Well, if you want to say something and you want to be impact, you say it's the God, the God did this, you know, the God that's wandering about the sky is, you know, Mercury. You see he's moving across the sky and then, oh, now he's going back, you know, because of X, Y, and Z. You can, you can make up all sorts of story about it. It has a big impact. And it's easier for people to remember. And the thing is, is what, what are the ideas that they're trying to impress people with? So it's the gods and the stories about the gods are messengers that they're using to tell a story. Um, just like if you think about in the Middle Ages, when you have the great cathedrals and you had the stained glass. And that was the medium for telling the people the story about from the Bible Uh, are different stories. So this is the medium where they're talking orally. They're using harmonics and poetic meter in order to help memorization. They're using uh, gods as heuristics, symbols, representations that are memorable. The stories are memorable. There's all sorts of, you know, there's sex and love and, and bestiality and all sorts of things that are, are going to uh, help people remember the stories and, and transmit, you know, it's the information that's being transmitted. And this is the methodology for transmitting it. Just And lastly, just think of it real briefly, um, you know, the Star Wars that we have today. What, it, what is the basics of Star Wars is, you know, the light and the dark it's the same sort of story as what Plato's telling here. And it's, you know, embraced by millions of people around the world because it's a very, you know, simple and easy to wrap your head around.
0: Thanks. Mm -hmm. It's a really good observation. I think that the addition of gods in a story make it particularly uh, resonant to the memory, I guess, or, or appealing to the memory. So I think that's, that's important to keep in mind because Plato was a dramatist. And so well, before he became a philosopher, I guess, and before he became a geometer, he was supposedly a dramatist. And so he would have known, uh, I think, how to create stories effectively. And so maybe putting gods in, if this is just a story, then putting gods in maybe is a way of making the story most effective to the listener. But even if it is a story, I think maybe there's things that we can learn from it. Um, And, you know, certainly Socrates has said elsewhere that we learn by analogy. And so maybe the story provides some sort of analogies that we can learn from. But I I like what you observed in terms of the effect of adding gods to a story. I think that's important to keep in mind. So thanks for that. And we'll go to Klim.
3: Okay. So the the more I think about it, the more I'm convinced. And I think I'm going to take that side, the, the mystical side for now. I think it's all true that everything that's been said about this whole theatrical, mystical entourage—you know, kind of like the uh, Catholic churches have the stained—you know, glasses as a medium of communication—so they're doing all that. But I think there's more to it, you know, because back in those times, people were religious; they they were mystical. It was part of their life, and basically, it's it's a lot easier to assume that they felt that they were you know some kind of mediums between the realm of god and between the realm of uh humans and to be able to talk about metaphysical things and kind of connect them to to the physical things you have to have some kind of legitimacy within that tradition within that uh culture and so it's i, I don't believe on their part it's just um Just a theater, like a modern theater in in our current culture. I think it's it's a lot more than that. It's a literal you know, mediation, sort of like a prophetic function that they're performing. They they I think they believe in that. Um and I I think it's really they're invoking certain truths through that. I think that's where I am right now, because to me it's it sounds more, you know, like a more true to the spirit of their times.
0: Yeah, you know, we keep in mind the time that's being in, uh, invoked here or the time. Actually, there's two times. There's the time 9,000 years before Plato wrote this, when the Atlanteans supposedly lived. And then there's the time of Plato. And the way they present things can be different based on the time. So I think that is something that we need to keep in mind. And so we'll see where it goes. So next we have Jameson. Welcome, Jameson.
4: Yeah, uh, I enjoyed the initial passage that we read with Salon and the discussion regarding competence and storytelling, reading that and these subsequent readings reminded me of the fact that it's kind of a description of, uh, and, you know, the perils of fading memories, how humans in general you information and knowledge from a, an empirical sense so when you are telling a story uh appealing to a you know mystical being a god that you idealize it will add credence to something that you don't really have a lot of detail on you'll attribute more weight to your belief in that story if it's reflective of something that you idealize and I find it interesting that that whole passage is the discussion of worshipping the whole god of mnemonic or whatever, and the methodology that humans apply to memory and repeating truths of you know in life. So yeah, that that, that whole passage is interesting, and it gave me a lot to think about. Thank you.
0: Thank you. Actually, you reminded me. <laughs> To talk about memory, you you reminded me of the whole idea in the Timaeus that the universe, Timaeus said, uh, the intelligent universe was created first, and then the physical universe was created after the intelligent universe. So the physical universe is the universe that provides us with the empirical evidence, but that came after the intelligent universe. And so I like the way you put that in terms of our human experience tends to be based on uh, We think that knowledge comes from the empirical, but maybe there's other knowledge that we have that's not empirical if the intelligent universe did, in fact, arise first. And so, as you say, appealing to the gods lends some sort of credence to this supernatural knowledge, maybe the supernatural meaning just above physical, like before the physical knowledge, there's other knowledge, there's the essential intelligence, so... Um, yeah, I, I like the way that you uh, that you said that. Thank you. and Darren,
2: ok. So this is <laughs> maybe we should move on a bit. this is this is not like central to the uh, dialogue, I guess, but I, I just want to respond a bit to what uh, Steve was saying because he's his theory is that maybe the gods feature here because they're an aid to memory, and it makes the story exciting and uh, interesting. i I just don't find this to what's actually going on in these dialogues. So first of all, just in general, though, like most dialogues don't actually, most of the Plato's dialogues don't actually have gods or feature them in any important sense. So they're mostly just between people. And they're not fantastical. They're actually just very human dramas. And <laughs> and in fact, there's a lot of subtlety too, you know, in, in Plato's dialogues and dramas that you sort of, you have to really pay attention to the text, tease out. They're not these grand you know, fantastical strokes of gods doing, you know, crazy things and which is why it sticks in your memory. And more specifically, uh, regarding the Timaeus and the Critias, these dialogues up to the point where it leaves off, like, let's face it, are completely anti-dramatic. I mean, there's nothing, like the Timaeus, it's like this huge list of things. Like, Did you read the last third of the Timaeus? It's like about all these body parts and how they came into being and the reasons for them and and how the triangles, like, um, you know, fit together to create like everything from phlegm to blood. And it's like, this is not okay. <laughs> to the extent there are gods here, it has nothing to do with like making it easier to remember. Like a lot of the Timaeus, like let's face it, it's frankly pretty dry. Um, And it goes on these gigantic paragraphs. And so the reason the gods are present here in the Critias and the Timaeus is not because, you know, it's a memory device, you know, that sort of, it's it's because these dialogues are literally about the subject of the origin of the universe of where everything came from I mean that's the significance of this dialogue that's why people read this dialogue I can guarantee you no one read if you want to read the dialogue with drama you don't pick up the Timaeus or the, the Critias because the drama literally ends where you know the Critias literally ends where the drama finally starts to pick up you might pick up you know um the apology or you know some other some or domino or, or so, so many of these other great dialogues so anyway i'm just saying like i i just don't think i just, I just don't find like steve's explanation convincing so I, <laughs> for those these reasons
0: yeah i think we have to remember where this dialogue fits in this trilogy that started with the Republican. so and that, that's the kind of the second theme that i wanted to talk about is the theme of social constitutions and so i find actually you know I don't know, I, I found the Timaeus hugely revelatory. Maybe not as fun dramatically, but it's fun intellectually, I think. And I think what we're doing here now is getting back to the idea of the social constitution that started in the Republic. So that's the second part that we're going to talk about. And the next reading that I have is about the nature of Atlantis itself, which is really, I find this kind of dramatic, actually. You know, he's I, I find as I read this, I can picture his description of Atlantis, this fantastic city, these very specific details he provides about the geometry of Atlantis, which I think is a, that's a discussion, I think, for another time, but I would love to have that discussion with folks about the geometry of Atlantis. And I think Plato is trying to give us a clue there. But yeah, I I think there is some drama in here, but I think it does relate to this idea of the social constitutions. And we're going to talk shortly about the nature of this, or the problems that arose with the constitution of Atlantis. So, yeah, thanks. Um, And then we'll go to Steve and then back to Jameson.
1: Why don't you go ahead and uh, skip me and we can, you know, move on once uh, Jameson's done.
0: Okay. All right, Jameson.
4: Yeah, I was referring to the passages, the salon story, and the tales of Atlanta and the symmetry of the design and all those other concepts. I still believe uh, it holds true, as someone discussed earlier about the advent of the printing press today back then you know these were stories that they were telling to accommodate the the reality that humans have a very short memory so we speak in these metaphors and these euphemisms and we describe things in a way and attribute them to gods maybe resemble or reflect our identities in a particular way so a more meta representation of reality versus, you know, some tactile description of some fantastic place. Whether there really was a a location called Atlantis, probably, um, you know, based on archaeological evidence. But the storytelling is the fantastic part of, you know, the whole Atlantis tale for me versus, you know, some amazing mystical things that are, you know, sea monsters or anything that you might find in a story like that.
0: Yeah, and the story is so compelling of Atlantis. I mean, it really has gripped the imagination for the past twenty four hundred years since Plato wrote about it. And you observe, you know, correctly that we have short memories, and I think our memories are becoming shorter uh, as a result of technology. In fact, there are many studies being done that show our attention spans are decreasing significantly because we rely on technology, and then because we're also reacting. Uh, so rapidly to things that appear on our screens that we're not taking the time to reflect. So there's a sense that, you know, the human mind is slow and we need to speed things up. So we use technology to speed it up and in the process of speeding it up, we lose that capacity for reflection, which is actually very important. You know, sometimes slower is better, but yeah, as you said, you know, we, we tend to have short memories. And so maybe Plato reaching back 9,000 years into the past, which is now 11,500 years into the past, Uh, is a way of telling us that, you know, memory really lasts a long time in the universe. Maybe the universe is, as I've said before, maybe the universe is essentially a information storage device. I mean, information has nowhere else to go. And so memories come and go. uh, And that's another point about this dialogue, actually, and and also one about the beginning of the Timaeus, when um, Critias talks about these civilization destroying events over time. And so memories disappear. And he talks specifically in this dialogue about you know, how certain people, when, they're, when there's a flood, for example, the people on the mountains can survive, but the people who live on the low plains who are flooded, they disappear. And so memory becomes incomplete in that sense. So I think maybe they're trying to kind of complete some cycle of memory and maybe time goes more in cycles rather than linear here. So an interesting idea. So let's maybe just skip towards the end. And this is again, though, on the theme of memory, Uh, and this talks more specifically about the people of Atlantis. So this is from 120E to 121B. So there's this great description of Atlantis that precedes this about, as I said, the geometry of the city, the layout of the city and rings, the bridges in the city, the waterways in the city. Uh, the fantastic cladding of the buildings. There's all sorts of this incredible description. I mean, it's it sounds like almost a paradise. I mean, it just this beautiful city, full of technology and capability, and very peaceful, very peaceful. They had all everything that they wanted, and so this talks about this. Uh, so Critias says, for many generations, and as long as enough of their divine nature survived. And actually, sorry, I'll just I should stop there. To explain that Atlantis had been founded by the god Poseidon, who fathered children from a mortal woman. And there were 10 kings of Atlantis, kind of like godlike kings, you know, and they just handed down from generation to generation. And this is how Atlantis was ruled. Uh, so it started from this divine origin through Poseidon. So I'll just start again. For many generations, and as long as enough of their divine nature survived, They were obedient unto their laws, and they were well disposed to the divinity they were kin to. They possessed conceptions that were true and entirely lofty, and in their attitude to the disasters and chance events that constantly befall men and in their relations with one another, they exhibited a combination of mildness and prudence. Because except for virtue, they held all else in disdain and thought their present good fortune of no consequence. They bore their vast wealth of gold and other possessions without difficulty, treating them as if they were a burden. They did not become intoxicated with the luxury of their life, their wealth made possible. They did not lose their self-control and slip into decline, but in their sober judgment, they could see distinctly that even their very wealth increased with their amity and its companion virtue. But they saw that both wealth and concord decline as possessions become pursued and honored, and virtue perishes with them as well. Now, because these were their thoughts, and because of the divine nature that survived in them, they prospered greatly, as we have already related. But when the divine portion in them began to grow faint, as it was often blended with great quantities of mortality, and as their human nature gradually gained ascendancy, at that moment in their inability to bear their great good fortune, they became disordered. To whoever had eyes to see, they appeared hideous, since they were losing the finest of what was once their most treasured possessions. But to those who were blind to the true way of life oriented to happiness, It was at this time that they gave the semblance of being supremely beauteous and blessed. Yet inwardly, they were filled with an unjust lust for possessions and power. Yeah, so this problem of disorder here, their concord slipped away, their concord or their harmony slipped away. They became disharmonious. And this is what leads to the end where Zeus decides that they need to be chastised for disharmony. And So harmony seems to have some role in memory. I think, you know, that they started as this kind of divinely inspired city. And so long as that divine portion in them survived, they were happy. But then humanity started to intervene. And this, I guess, you know, maybe divergence of opinions, lust for control over each other, uh, that sort of thing started to happen. And, you know, this is what happens maybe as civilizations begin to pursue material wealth. And that's why I said in the outset that I think there's some parallels to modern life in this, in that we tend to pursue material wealth. And then that can lead to great discord and disharmony. So we'll take Clem, then Steve, then Darren.
3: Right. So, I mean, there's very literal reading to it, right? That, you know, you could take that literal reading and, and try to explain um, you know, what happened, why why we lose memories of certain things, or what our memory, you know, hinges on, and, you know, what happens with uh, morale in the society, and so on. So the, the text clearly mentions the divine origin of that whole island, the population, the culture, the civilization that they had. And then it basically, it is without another divine intervention. There's no other impulse, right? other than the original impulse. And then the divine share in, I guess, in the king's bloods generation over generation diminishes and the humanity, because it becomes more and more human, it kind of falls uh, into that, the half animal state, I guess, without the divine spark. And the same can be, I guess, the, the parallel can be drawn with not just the the whole culture, but also the ability to remember things not just the history but the certain truths about the the universe right so then you know coming back to the my idea of the theater you know maybe that's the way back in you know to the divine right like how do you regain that divine spark so you have to have some kind of means of connection or reconnection and you could you know remember the the, all these concepts of the eternal return for example of Mirce eliadi uh and, and that's where the cults are you know the the purpose of the the rite or the ritual this ceremony is explained as the basically reliving certain truths the original truths or making them invoking them and making them you know reenacting them again but yeah to me that's that would be probably the first like the most credible explanation if you take that text literally now what else i would be curious to know what else it could mean (laughs) other than that
0: yeah, interesting the way you said that theater could be the way to reconnect with the divine through these representations. Uh, I like that idea of reconnection with the divine, and also as you mentioned, you know there was initially this divine impulse. I think and spark both words you used. So that only happens once in the whole cycle, and then everything just they they lose that 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 fades over time. Memories fade over time, and you know as we said before, they're becoming shorter now. But, you know, certainly it seems the memory lasted a fairly long time in Atlantis, but, you know, eventually it faded. So, Steve.
1: I think this section is a good counter to the uh, argument Darren made about everything we're talking about in this is based on divine, you know, and, and everything throughout the Timaeus also. was all, you know, the divine creation, you know, there has to be a... Uh, deity uh, deus ex machina you know something that is the causal point the uh, call it uh, intelligence james mentioned uh, something supernatural well you are implying some deity into your explanation as the method that's what you're using as the basis for your method and saying that this is not a story about divinity but it's about metaphysics. Metaphysics is also a story. It's a, a story about you know our conceptions of the universe and in this case it's relies thoroughly on the divine and it's a common trope you know you think about you know any you've seen the old movies about the Ten Commandments, Moses coming down from the mountain and you know the people you know forgot what they're supposed to be doing you know the rituals, the rites, that that's what that all the people that were hearing this that were, were not the elites of the society they were being uh, guided by the priest whether philosophical or theological on the way that they're supposed to live and you know these are the methodologies that they use for it so I think it is a an, an expression of a, a story about divinity that's used in order to I'm not saying it's used in an evil purpose, I'm saying it's used as a purpose to communicate ideas about potentially ways to live and things of that nature, but it's it's definitely um, not founded in any uh, empirical, um, I don't want to go that far as saying it's not founded in empirical evidence, I'll I'll just leave it at that, thank you.
0: I would agree, I think, too, that the divine is really essential to this, and especially the ending when, and there's particular words at the ending that I'll, I'll get to shortly. Well, no, we'll have to go through the, constitution, the social constitution first, but there's a very important part at the ending when he said that, this is talking about Zeus, to this end he called all the gods to their most honoured abode, which stands at the middle of the universe and looks down upon all that has a share in generation. And I think that Position in the middle of the universe is very important. Um, and that speaks to I think the the seat of intelligence, you know, because Plato has said that the universe itself has a soul. Timeus said that, and Plato has said it in the Philippus and elsewhere that the universe has itself has a soul. And so this soul maybe could be part of the divine universe, and to the extent that each of us has a soul then we each have a share in the divine. The Atlanteans had a particularly significant share in the divine as they descended directly from Poseidon. But you know, maybe we each have a share of the divine. And I have a little diagram on the last page that maybe will illustrate this in the context of spherical geometry, which we talked about two weeks ago in the Timaeus. Uh, and you know, the question is, what's in the middle of a sphere? That's maybe rather divine. So I don't know. I think that Metaphysics ideas is is important. So we'll go to Darren
2: all right. So <laughs> I have uh I guess I have two big things I have to say talk about now because uh, I just want to just quickly respond to Steve, which is just I guess more maybe more clarification what I said earlier. So like I agree that the divine has an important role in the Cris and Timeus. I'm not denying that. And I think it has that important role because these dialogues are specifically about the origin of the universe. I don't know how like it's it's I think it's natural to reach for gods, especially at the time. But even now, when you want to talk about you know where everything came from, i I just don't think that Plato introduces gods just for this as a like I think would be like a kind of cheap, dramatic device to aid memory or just to get people interested. I, I don't I don't think Plato reaches for these what i like I think are kind of like cheap tricks. The gods are here because of the topic, which is like metaphysics and the origin, literally the origin of the universe. And the in the other uh, dialogues, which aren't about this topic, right? Unless it's specifically about like Euthyphro, specifically about you know whether morality comes from the gods. I mean, a, a lot of times gods do not come into the argument. It's not like oh, but God tells you to do. God says this, and and in fact, a lot of these dialogues question what the gods or the, what the myths that the ancient Greeks believed in. They challenge those assumptions. And, and in fact, I imagine what many people continue to value about Plato is the way he uses reason to discuss other metaphysical topics or ethics or political philosophy. Like he he wants us to think rationally and use reason. And Socrates certainly does. So I anyway, that's, that's all I want to say. Like I do. I agree that divine is important in these two dialogues, but it's because of the topic and it's not a general thing for Plato's dialogues. Um, OK, no. <laughs> So just the clarification, what I was trying to say there. And uh, okay, back to this, uh, this ending, the quote that James read. When when he read it, I just I I just came to love this part even more. There's just so much here. Like I don't even know where to start. I'll just try. I'll just attempt to make. I guess maybe one, uh, um, one coherent train of thought. So, gosh, I don't even know where to start. Um, let me think. I'll just say I'll just say this one train of thought. I'm afraid I I, I might go on way too long. So I, I'll just okay. I'll just try to make this one point for now, which is that I wonder if it's interesting to compare with the section that comes before this or before the Atlantis. Critias discusses archaic. I'm gonna call it archaic Athens, which is the Athens that existed nine thousand years before Socrates, supposedly existed nine thousand years before Socrates, and there would be a great battle between this archaic Athens and um and Atlantis. So actually, uh, James, can I ask you a question? Like, do, mm-hmm. are you said you're going to talk more about the Constitution of Atlantis. Mm-hmm. Is that is that about, like, the stuff earlier in the text? Or
0: is it about... Uh... Yeah, yeah. so the Constitution, the, the parts I've selected, there's 109, oh, you a one, a 110, okay. then I get into talk about the Guardians at 112, and then there's a particularly... Compelling part at 120A to B that I wanted to talk about with respect to the constitutions becoming rigid because they lose their memory.
2: Oh, okay. I, I guess I wanted to touch a bit on that too. Maybe I'll just talk about in general for now. <laughs> so I guess what's interesting to me is that Athens is also described as good. So you you read all this stuff about Atlantis and how it sounds like this wonderfully virtuous people and this virtuous society. Yeah, it somehow deteriorated. Like how the world did that happen? And that's such an important subject both i guess in general but also for plato's own day that i can't believe he would have written this without like some clues about like what we are to take from it even you know in this part that exists this part that we have and then athens so athens is also described as excellent too if you go back <laughs> read that section i mean athens sounds like they're pretty good people so why did atlantis succumb and um athens did not i think that's a question we should ask and I think there are clues to what the differences might be I'm just wondering if we should um let's see what Mm -hmm. I just want to see what James has coming up maybe it'll be more helpful to have some of those sections up first
0: yeah I think Um, I think we can get there it's um certainly you know why Atlantis succumbed I think is an important question and I think that you know the talk about the battle between Athens and Atlantis I guess that was more in the Timaeus but this is more about the destruction of Atlantis itself. Maybe it's because Atlantis was more directly associated with the god, whereas hmm. Athens, yeah, Athens you, wasn't. I don't know.
2: Are you gonna this? Sorry, I can't scroll down your screen. But yeah. are we gonna talk about more about the um the like the ritual aspects that they have yeah. with a with a yep
0: yep absolutely okay yeah
2: um all right maybe I'll save it for yeah. then the comment for then but I think there is something about. Like, although Atlantis described as having, you know, being good, it's also like, curiously authoritarian. (laughs) (laughs) And despite all their virtue and talents and abilities, at the very core of Atlantis... And the the dialogue spends this curious amount of time describing the rituals that exist like literally at the core, like the spiritual core, but also like literally physically at the core of Atlantis. Yeah. In the very middle, there's a stele with their laws and they sort of like worship it and describe these elaborate rituals of blood and flame surrounding the stele and how it lasts all night. Like they don't sleep yeah. all night and all the, the main rulers, they have yeah. this ritual. I don't think Athens is described as that way. It is not described as that way. So I think that, yes, irrational core that is like really emphasized in this dialogue. Yeah. I guess that's what I would bring up for now. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Okay. Maybe what I'll do is I'll read that section next, the 128 to B section that talks about that ritual. And the reason i think is for that is because they had become reliant on the constitutions that were established in the past and they were unable to continue to form their own constitutions so they started to rely on the constitutions of the past because they had lost their memory their memory was fading and i think this really does have a lot of parallels to modern constitutions because I think a lot of modern constitutions as I said in the uh, in the introduction are really showing their age and incapacity to deal with all this new disharmony that has been introduced I think a lot by technology so um, anyway so I'll read that yeah, next but I we'll love go, that yeah, that's we'll, a good connection yeah, yeah we'll, we'll go to Clem first
3: yeah that's, that's a good question why um, Atlantis succumbed to I guess the, the evil and the The greeks or the greece or that the the land civilization did not although there is an indication that they also lost their their memory and the the former grace uh when it talks about the the people in the mountains like the you know simpler folks in the mountains who did not remember much and you know had just the fragments of of knowledge um now the interesting thing i is that the the whole land i guess the whole universe was divided between gods so there's no reason for us to say that you know the Greeks were not attached to their gods to Athena and Hephaestus in the same measure or or in a lesser measure than the uh, Atlanteans were attached to Poseidon for example so there was connection on both sides probably you know strong connection you know i mean you you could explain maybe potentially just the it's, it's a simple fact of the war between gods that you know zeus did just didn't like something about the poseidon and it's like the revival of the the old strife or whatever they, they remembered some issues back in the past and decided to <laughs> clash again uh you it's, it's kind of points to a cyclical nature potentially you know of the you know the the natural cyclical patterns potentially It's a good thing. I mean, I don't know, maybe or maybe just the part of the text was lost and we don't know what Zeus said because maybe the the account existed, but maybe it was just burned somewhere in the library of Alexandria and nobody knows uh, what happened um, to the rest of the story. Maybe it's that. Um, But to an earlier point about the divinity and reason, I think. One does not abolish the other. I mean, reason does not abolish the divinity, and the, the, the divinity does not abolish the reason. In fact, I'm more than certain that the Plato and, and his followers would say that the divinity is the um, the source of the reason. So that's, you know, coming back to the divine spark being the um, in their theory, right? I mean, regardless of what we think, uh, but we. We're trying to interpret the, their story, their account, right? So I, I think it's just the more logical just to assume and take their account more or less literally. Uh, and that is the everything comes from God, from the divinity, from the divine principle. And the reason is just part of the human human reason and ability to think is just the extension of that.
0: I like when you said divinity is the source of reason because that really brings me back to the middle of the universe and that's where it says the gods reside. In the middle of the universe, but let's remember what Timaeus said, that the universe is spherical and there can be nothing solid at the middle of the universe. So the middle of the universe is not physical. And recall what Darren said about Plato wanted us to use reason. Well, if we're using reason, then we're using the part of our minds which is not physical. We're not using the physical brain. We're using the part of the mind that's connected to something that is not physical. And what's not physical, what's not physical is at the center of the universe. So maybe that's that connection to divinity is that that timeless realm of being is in the center of the universe, in the center of the sphere. I think that's an important. I, I like that divinity is a source it's just, of reason.
3: It's just yeah. a quick, very quick remark. Um, I think it later developed, like in, in the later scholastics and in, in the Christian doctrine, because I think Christianity took a lot of, you know, Platonist thought, you know, there are Neoplatonists that basically form the Christianity, Christianity's theory is, well, theology is basically Greek in thought, you know, for the most part of it, probably. And it's, I think they they developed this concept of intellectual intuition that stems pro- probably directly from Plato and Aristotle, which is that link between the, the divine and the human.
0: And, and a powerful link too. So, And and I wanted to thank you as well for reminding us of that connection of Athens to Athena and Hephaestus. Uh, I don't think Athena or Hephaestus sired children, so it, it wasn't as if the Athenians were direct physical descendants of the god as the Atlanteans were direct physical descendants of a god, Poseidon, and a mortal mother. So maybe that was part of the difference, and that's maybe why the Atlanteans had this long-lasting memory of divinity in them, because they directly evolved from that divine birth. So interesting. But thank you for reminding us of of that connection of Athens. And Steve?
1: So I'm afraid I can't stop thinking of it as a story that, uh, you know, it's a different interpretation, seeing, you know, asking why did uh, Atlantis fall and why did... The Athenians prospered well, because Plato wrote it that way. You know, it's not a, you know, f- from everything we can see, it's not a direct history of something. He, to- he says it's a likely story. It's myths. It came from Egyptian myths. It's the same as talking about, you know, here's Game of Thrones. There's two people standing on a hillside, and then they walk down the hill. Well, why did they walk down the hill? Well, because the author wrote it that way. So that's the basic uh, looking at this that, you know, and and I don't think that any of Plato's uh, methodologies or anything I'm saying is cheap tricks or anything like that. I think he is trying to put forth information, you know, reason, logic, uh, stories, ethics, values, and he's excellent, probably beyond measure, and using all the tools in his toolbox. Like you said, he was a a dramatist the a geometer he's using all these tools to tell a story a likely story and he's telling a story that he has come up with in his brain and and uh, you know also i'm a physicalist so when we're saying that you know when we're using the brain we're using a part that's not the physical part i don't see that i see us you know that everything we're seeing from neurobiology is there's neural correlates the correlates of consciousness you know we're you know, taking in foods, we're producing, and we're breathing, we're producing energy that's, you know, going to the brain, it's causing, you know, this, it, it, it is physical, it's information, information is physical. And the idea of there being, you know, a circle or an empty spot in the middle of the universe, that's part of the story. That's Plato writing a story to, to make a Point. I don't want to say dramatic point. I want to say he's trying to make, make a point and he's trying to convey his information. So I'm just saying there is a, another explanation for, you know, the, a physicalist explanation for how the brain functions uh, other than, than uh, using it that it's a divine or a God or a supernatural input or soul that, that is uh, supernatural that there is explanations that are actual physical and materialist explanations. Thanks.
0: Yeah, And I would say, I mean, to the extent that there's no empirical evidence of Atlantis, I would say also that there's no empirical evidence of uh, a conscious thought or reason. I mean, nobody has been able to pinpoint any physical evidence of reason. There's no equations for reason like there is for physical items. So I think there's a lot that is not subject to empirical evidence. So maybe that's that's a point on both sides there. And, and yeah, I mean, definitely to the extent that there's no empirical evidence, we have to be cautious of the representations, that danger that Critias talked about at the beginning is that when we start talking about representations in the uncertainties of the realm of becoming, then we are subject to opinion and then opinions start to differ. And discord and disharmony can develop to the extent that those differences uh, involve things of, you know, things like power and all of that sort of stuff. So, so yeah, some, some good points there. Thank you. Um, And just before we go to Darren, just because you raised it before Darren, I did want to read this part about the constitution, because I think this is important. To bring us back as well to the Republic, and I have a few more readings on the Constitution of uh, of Atlantis, but this I thought was good. Uh, and this is talking about the sacrifice um, that you mentioned earlier. So I just thought I'd read this first. Yeah, actually, because I just, I just wanted, to, yeah. I, I, I know we want
2: to move on to that. I just wanted to respond to both Clem and Steve, actually, that's what.
0: Okay, uh, all right. Well, go ahead and then I'll read it.
2: Okay, just on this issue of what we have empirical evidence of. So the previous quote we were just looking at I mean, it it sort of flags that a bit too. So it says like to those who were blind to the truly happy life or the life oriented to life oriented happiness, it was at this time that they gave the semblance of being supremely beauteous and blessed. So he's saying here that as Atlantis was sort of like falling apart, disintegrating, that's when the people (laughs) who I guess like rely on sight actually thought like Atlantis was at its best. It looked uh blessed and beauteous, but it was deceptive. They, these people were blind to the truly another translation. The Perseus translation says these people were blind to the truly happy life, which is supposedly like not visible in the same way. Yeah. And so quickly, and just responding to Clem, I just want to say, um, yeah, I, I just I completely agree with Clem. He made an important point that reason is not just reason for Plato, it is related to the divine. So I, I don't disagree with that. I, I was just objecting this idea, like this other idea when people talk about oh, there's God and there's a divine here, and you know, it's sort of used in a denigrated sense, as in like it's just something arbitrary and supernatural, or as Steve said, it's introduces a Deus Ex Machina, it was just some arbitrary device. Like, that's not the idea of the divine in Plato, it's not some arbitrary story or myth, it is intimately tied to reason. So, like I completely agree with Clem. My objection was very specific to. A certain conception of how god is used either as a dramatic device which is does not actually happen in most dialogues or as like some arbitrary like supernatural thing to solve our metaphysics or whatever it yeah
0: yeah and thank you for calling up those words at 121b uh that they gave the semblance of being supremely beauteous and blessed it's a good observation that that's where uh opinion i guess comes into play when we rely maybe just on what we see and not what is actually inwardly existing yet inwardly they were filled with an unjust lust for possessions and power so they appeared beautiful but inwardly they were ugly so that's a good uh, and important thing to recall now uh so i just wanted to there's a couple of things here but I, i'll read this bit about the constitution first this is 120 to b this comes following a description of the capture and slaughter of a bull as an offering to the god so the Ten kings did this capturing and slaughtering of the bull and offered it to the gods. So Critias says, after this, they would draw the blood from the mixing bowl into gold pouring vessels, pouring the blood over the fire. They would take an oath to render justice according to the laws inscribed on in the stele, and to punish anyone who had violated these laws since they last met. And he had said earlier that they met every every five or six years, five or six years. Interesting two numbers there for Plato, especially. So punish anyone who had violated these laws since they last met. They swore that in the future, they would not willingly violate any of the provisions of the inscription, and that they would neither rule nor obey a ruler if either they or he did not issue commands that were in conformity with the laws of their father. When each of the kings had made this oath and engaged both himself and his descendants, they drank and dedicated their pouring vessels in the sanctuary of the god. And once they had finished with their dinner and everything else they had to do, and night had fallen and the fire about the sacrificial offerings had subsided, they all put on a deep blue robe of the most splendid appearance, and sitting on the ground next to the embers of the sacrificial victim at night, they put out the fire still flickering in the sanctuary and judged anyone accused of violating any of their laws and were judged themselves." Once they had passed judgment, when day dawned, they recorded their judgments on a gold tablet, which they dedicated as a memorial offering along with their robes. So I like that. I mean, it talks about memorial offerings. So that's the memory part again. But I think what Critias is pointing to here is that they had become quite rigid in their interpretation of what justice was. Now, if justice, of course, was the subject of the Republic, and we never found out in the Republic what justice is, but I think we're hearing in this dialogue that it has something to do with harmony. And that was also a connection that was made in the Republic. So we're hearing here that it had something to do with harmony, but the problem is when they fixed their laws in the past, you know, they said that they would only obey commands that were in conformity with the laws of their father. Well, you know, did those laws address the harmony and problems of harmony in the current times? And then this, again, I think is a significant parallel to our modern situation. There are laws, for example, in Canada that were designed as part of our constitution when it came into being in 1867 that provided powers to the provinces uh, and not to the federal government. And yet there are problems which are now nationwide, which kind of demand a national response. And yet the power to deal with those is not in the hands of the national government. It's in the hands of the provincial governments. So this is a case where we're stuck to constitutions, you know, in Canada's case, uh, over 150 years ago, there's a similar situation in the United States. Of course, we read about all of the constitutional conflicts that when we live in the past and we we can't harmonize ourselves with the present situation, it results in problem, it, it results in disharmony and discord. And so here they had become very rigid. They only believe what was written on that steely. So we'll take Klim, then Steve, then Darren
3: okay um yeah perhaps they, they've become too rigid in the in, in their interpretation or, or, or just merely due to the fact of them sticking to the original laws where maybe they should have conformed you know with time to maybe some some other law or some modified those the original code somehow maybe although it's not really that evident from from the text in fact if I were to, take this literally it actually sounds like pretty good democracy there and the fact that there's you know there's one ruler but it's, it looks like it's more of a he's more of a mediator kind of and he's uh, kind of helping the process kind of being maybe being the judge and everybody else is trying to stick by the rules maybe maybe a little bit tough you know in in too rigid maybe but that particular paragraph doesn't strike me as as something bad necessarily but I wanted to Mention one one idea that just came to me, uh, James, when you you mentioned the distinction between the Athenians and the Atlanteans and how they they're related to God and and that the Athenians maybe uh, were not direct descendants of gods. That actually brings to memory that the biblical account of the, you know, the sons of God and, you know, having you know, pleasure with uh, earthly women and the, the Titans and, and then the God kind of, um, you know, not liking it and destroying like basically the, the deluge resulting from, from that. So maybe that divine spark in the, the Atlantean, the, the, the Poseidon spark, right. In the Atlanteans was not a natural way of, unrolling the, the universe or or, or maintaining the, the balance, right? Because if you think about it, if you take the Plato's account, uh humans are divine just by the virtue of the same unveiling, right? And un- un- unwrapping into you know from from the same to all this continuum from the same to nothingness. So we're we're already divine just by the nature of the creation. Now Poseidon comes in and kind of like the biblical hero generates titans right which is the, uh, the abomination in the the eyes of the biblical god so maybe poseidon kind of created the unnaturalness there in the whole balance and maybe that's the main cause right of of the first the glory right and then the uh, the sudden fall of the civilization fall of the morals because there was that distortion in in the natural things so in or in and maybe even distortion in the relation of people to gods like you know compared to how it was in greece for example
0: i really like the way you said that distortion really makes me think again of the memory theme and the distortion of this memory of a connection to gods which is no longer possible so over time that connection disappears and yet they cling to that distortion and you know so as normal humans now you know, we're not born of gods, but they clung to that and they they wrote their laws on that basis. They inscribed those laws in the stele and they would not allow any variation from that. Uh, and maybe it's that not allowing variations and not dealing with what were causing the disharmonies over time that led to their downfall. So, an interesting thought there, uh, but I like that. And, and yeah, the, the idea that Poseidon created that unnaturalness that first led to glory and then to the downfall. I think that was that was very helpful. So thanks for that. And then we'll go to Steve and Darren.
1: Yeah, I think this section points to Plato's power as the dramatist to beat his point. You know, he couldn't make it any more, you know, less appealing by, you know, the gods, what they're doing, all the abominable things they're doing to show why they were bad and to make his point. So again, he's just, you know, showing his power you know, as a writer. I'd like to. Uh, I think I mostly agree with what Clem is saying, and I'd like to put some points on the positive side for constitutions. You know, so if you are, have a ability to change things too easily, you know, it's not necessarily that uh, there's reasons why some things are hard to change. It's the whole history of jurisprudence is based on case history and a building up of, of precedence. So if you have a buildup of precedence over time, it's a way of showing that things have worked in the past and that they could continue to work. So it's not always uh, good or necessary to, to have the ability to to easily change the constitution. Uh, living in the United States, you know, as recently as three years ago, we saw how they wanted to subvert the constitution, and um, you know, Trump wanted to stay in power even though he didn't win. But it was only the people that. Uh, put their loyalty behind the constitution rather than uh their political uh, affiliations conservatives who you know may have agreed with a lot of the the policies that trump was uh, in the conservative uh, mega a movement that he represents they might have believed in some of those policies but they still believe more in the right of the, in the need to follow the constitution so yeah there's obviously a lot wrong in, in our constitution that needs to be adjusted but there's a lot of reasons why you know and again you, you can use another example if you go back to germany when hitler and the nazis came into power you might want the constitution to be easier to change but you have to you don't always uh necessarily want to get what you wish for because things might get changed not the way you want they might get changed another way so i think that's the other side of constitutions being difficult to change.
0: That's a really good example, too, I think, and and good to, to remember that, yeah, things can't be left to the whim of the times, uh, that there has to be some balance. And I guess this is kind of reminiscent, I think, of Plato's dialogue, The Statesman, where, you know, kind of knowledge of the consequences of actions over time is really the key thing that the that the ruler needs to know. But as you say, you don't want constitutions to be too easily changed according to, you know, just whims of the time. And I think maybe just even thinking about Athens in the time of Plato and Socrates, you know, it descended into a tyranny. So constitutions can be easily subverted. So definitely something that needs to be, it's one of those tensions, I guess. It's one of those tensions in balancing opinions uh, of people. And that's one of those human things that Critias again warns about at the beginning is that we we have these differences of opinion. Um, and then, so how do we balance this? Well, I think, you know, this talk about memory and this memory exists in some sort of harmony, uh, maybe that's the key. And so I think maybe the point I'm trying to make here is that I'm not advocating for completely loose constitutions that can be changed, you know, any moment, but it's more just that there be some logical context with the past and that the memories of what has gone on in the past can survive. And I think this is what they get caught in though by adhering too closely to those memories and not thinking about what's going on in the present. So, um, Darren.
2: Yeah, so regarding this passage um, and um, what it's trying to suggest, right? Because Clem is saying like, maybe it doesn't seem that authoritarian, I guess I'll just present my reading of this, which is that I think Plato is definitely flagging something here. Okay, so we can disagree about what this is, but there's definitely something very extremely important being flagged. Um, so we spent pages describing this like perfectly or or seemingly like math proportional and perfectly rationally designed like I'm not going to say city because I looked at the distances that they use. This is literally a continent. It's like Australia existed beyond Mm -hmm. (laughs) in in the Atlantic Ocean or something like that. It's like a mass. It's not an island. It's like a massive continent. Okay, and it's described as having these like wondrous infrastructure, these rational proportions, these circles. And so it seems like very rational. And these people are being described as good. But then like it's so weird that right in the middle, (laughs) literally in the middle, we get to he, he play describes this like curious ritual surrounding the stele, which has the constitution inscribed on it, and which these guardians like it, it just suddenly devolves into suddenly something almost like primitive seeming. Like they use these rituals of blood and they pour it and then they pour it on each other and then they pour it into the flame and then they stay up all night. Like if you read the description, I was trying to, I, I'm pretty sure like it is describing the them as literally staying up all night to do this, and they have these purple robes and um, they don't sleep all night. And and that's when they were like, you know, debating whether any of them violated this constitution in the preceding years or whatever. So it's, as I said earlier, it sounds like there's this like curiously irrational core to what was described for pages earlier as like this seemingly very like rational place. So I, I think something's being flagged. Like I think it's unmistakable. So, so the debate would be like interpretive. Like, what is that? Like, I, I think it's describing something authoritarian, that although it's a rational design to to me, it seems to be saying something about their attitude towards the most uh, basic tenets of the Constitution. Um, It's not about, you know, not having a constitution or whatever. It's like they have this sort of irrational attitude towards it that seems kind of authoritarian. I mean, if you describe how, how it's treated, you know, how they pass it down from tradition, from generation to generation, it never changes. And they seem to apply it and treat it in a rather rigid way. So that's the way I'm reading this. Whatever Plato's flagging, that's the way I'm seeing it. And, and another contrast I would draw is not just between the pages describing the rational construction of Atlantis and in this strangely curious, like almost primitive seeming core, but there's another comparison, which is between the whole of Atlantis and the whole of Athens, which is described in, in several pages before we got to Atlantis. And Athens is described as also good. And although Athens also sort of degenerates over time, it's not because of something in them it's not something in their heart or their attitude it's something about the environment it's like basically literally like there are all these disasters and floods and storms and earthquakes and like shit happens it's the world of becoming and so then um you know the Athens generates that way and I would also point out another contrast between Atlantis and Athens being described is that okay so Clem was correct earlier when he said that oh but you know Athens also had relation to the gods so like it's not like the Atlas people the Atlantian, Atlanteans had a relation to God and this was like somehow authoritarian and this led to their downfall well Athens had a relation to gods too but it's described very differently so I would point out that um the the Hackett translation says that the gods directed us from the stern as if they were applying to the soul the rudder of persuasion and uh, the rudders at the back, right? <laughs> so it's like God is like persuading us with it, it's in persuasion that's capitalized. And, and then the uh, Perseus translation says they uh, grab a hold of our soul by persuasion as by a rudder. And they drove and steered all mortal kind that way. I mean, by persuasion versus this like, Ritualistic steely in the middle, where you that you basically seem to like worship irrationally, and you do it overnight without any sleep, and you don these weird purple robes. Okay, like it's being described very differently. So again, I think you know we shouldn't miss this contrast between how both Athens and Atlantis sort of succumb in the end; they sort of deteriorate, degenerate. But it seems to be describing very different ways, and so I think it's it's more than just like a you know a fun story to read. <laughs> right as steve was saying i think okay yeah on the one hand atlantis degenerated because plato wrote it that way okay well but i think there are like if you pay attention to the details i think there are these deeper lessons that at least plato wants to draw out regarding ethics and political philosophy and, and metaphysics actually because it's all related to the creation the, the universe here and the human beings place in the universe yeah i just want to bring out those contrasts between both the core of Atlantis and all the other rational parts of Atlantis and also between Athens and Atlantis.
0: And you started by mentioning the authoritarian sort of side of things. And that's that was kind of interesting in relation to the discussion of the guardians in Atlantis. So we recall from the Republic that when they were building this idealized city, they created these guardians. And so I just wanted to, uh, before we go to Clem, I just wanted to read those bits because you mentioned the guardians. Uh, so this is 110 C to D. And they said, now at that time, the other classes of citizens who dwelt in our city were engaged in manufacturing and producing food from the earth. But the warrior class that had originally been separated from them by godlike men lived apart. And I would just say, remind originally separated. So how did the separation happen after the gods stopped being involved? They had all that was appropriate to their training and education. None of them had any private possession, but they thought all of all of their possessions as the common property of all. And they asked to receive nothing from the other citizens beyond what they needed to live. Their activities were all activities that were spoken of yesterday when the guardians proposed by our theory were discussed. So the Republic, they took this idea from Atlantis that there should be this guardian class, you know, this kind of class to maintain authority in the city. Um, And then there's this part of 112D that goes on again about the guardians. Uh, This was the manner of their life. They were the guardians of their own citizens and the leaders of the rest of the Greek world, which followed them willingly. And they kept their population stable as far as they could, both of men and women, for generation after generation, maintaining the population of those who had reached military age or were still of military age at close to 20,000 at most. Um, So this maintaining of this guardianship uh, was important to Atlantis. And that's maybe, again, a sign of maybe some sort of authoritarian system that could give rise to disharmony. And we have to remember how Critias started the discussion appealing to the goddess of memory and talking about uh, when he said, despite our best intentions, if we've spoken any discordant note, then please provide the remedy, which is understanding. So we need to keep some sort of accord going, some sort of harmony going. Uh, And maybe the guardians are maybe necessary, but not necessarily harmonious. So um, I would put it at that. Um, And I would like to leave some time just shortly at the end to talk about the ending of this dialogue. But we'll go to Clem and then Steve.
3: That's actually a very interesting point about the guardians. I was actually when I was reading this, I, I was thinking, why in a this divine paradise that just seems so perfect and so so rich, prosperous? Why do you need so so much militarization there? Like, what's going on there? <laughs> There's some kind of hidden maybe strife, or. Is that how they keep order? You know, like where they keep the common folks out, uh, you know, like the outside the wall or something. Because unless they're preparing for war, but then no, they're they're not keeping the the troops on the periphery. They're like almost at the center there. This class of of warriors, and they're all you know glorified and and proud and and, and rich. I uh, probably have like golden, you know, gilded uh, weapons, like the the uh, you know swords or whatever, like which reminds me the the uh, Tolkien's <laughs> thing, and that's what I was thinking when I was reading yeah. this. They just uh, the in the Tolkien images uh, come to mind, yeah. but um, but anyway, here's another thought that relates to this: the potential distortion, that the twist in the natural order of things that the Poseidon makes. Um, as a hypothesis, I wonder if Plato is trying to say something to us, but also is kind of debating himself because he has this perfect, perfect idea of the universe. It's geometrical, right? When when we read the Timaeus, it's beautiful, geometrical. It's very intellectual, very rational. This is divine mind that, you know, is the architect and it's also a living thing. And then boom, you have this the whole thing almost recreated on the, on the earthly plane in the Atlantis, the, the, the continent, like Darren said, the, the huge continent of Atlantis. And they carve this up beautifully in spherical, in circles, they build the canals. So they it's like almost they recreated this, they created, they took the image, this image, the divine image, literally, and brought it down to earth. Maybe, maybe that's why all those soldiers were necessary, because somebody had to construct that, and who knows, maybe slaves, but basically, it's like, maybe they went overboard with this effort, and maybe Plato is trying to tell himself, like, hey, yeah, it's all beautiful, but don't try to recreate on Earth this divine order because it's it comes at a at a great cost maybe a great risk maybe over overstrain of, of the society maybe it's just too much all this gold and silver and potentially all these sacrifices which I mean to me they don't strike like the sacrificial part of that because I think that's the whole world was doing that I don't know about Greeks mm-hmm. but I mean they also I mean they had this Dionysian, Uh, rituals which were you know pretty pretty terrible uh, the way I understand I mean people were like ripping people apart Uh, so that particularly doesn't strike me but the whole geometry of things and this effort huge effort to recreate literally the divine geometrical structure of physical things and the almost like bringing down to the spiritual order of things where you do you have these castes, you have this rigid structure um maybe plato is saying hey no no don't don't take that literally be more like athens like be rational be human because that's your you live in your own human realm you you have to respect gods but don't build what god have there on, on the olympus don't don't build it here because this this is what's going to happen and it's kind of interesting and um it also brings this Aristotelian idea of rhetorics, I think, where he, I think if I, if I'm correct, the Aristotle says, maybe that connects to, to this idea also of, of divine rigidity when accomplished at the human level, I think Aristotle would say, don't talk in precise terms when when you talk on this, the, the plane, our plane of reality. So he, I think he reserved the abstract ideas and mathematics and the laws of logic for the platonic realm, for the gods, for the precise geometry. That's where his logical rules, like the A equals A and not B. But for our earthly realm, he's saying, no, we have to explain things. Our sciences should be based our philosophy it should be rhetorical, like poetical in nature. So it's it's the lack of precision. In mm-hmm. fact, it's intentional avoidance of pure absolutist kind of cutting-edge rational mind where, you know, you should not talk to each other. You should not do things in a precise, like right or wrong, you know, in a precise manner. You should like smoothen the angles there a little bit, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like make yeah. it more poetic, make it more interesting, Yeah. yeah. you know.
0: Yeah. I Maybe mean, that's the you know again the debate in the phylibus pleasure versus knowledge and how much pleasure is is appropriate and actually I really like the way you you said that that you know Atlantis may be kind of a, an attempted recreation of the divine order that Timaeus has explained that really made me think and that really made me think about parallels to the Republic where they were trying to build this idealized city so this the Republic was the discussion that happened the day before this before Critias's talk here. Uh, and they tried to create an idealized city based on their thoughts of what a correct social constitution would be. And then Socrates, at the beginning of the Timaeus, said he couldn't foresee that coming into motion. And I think that's because of the human element that's that gets in in the way. Um, and you know, maybe the human element. There's nothing wrong with the human element. It it is what it is. But it involves opinion, and opinion is subject to difference. So I really like the way you said that. You know, like don't try to recreate on earth, what is in heaven? Because first of all, you don't know what's in heaven. And secondly, we're not built to act in heavenly ways. Uh, be rationally human, I think is how you said it. So I really like that. Um, and because we only have three minutes left, but I you know, would ask people if it could stay a little bit longer. I just did want to read this ending because we really should talk about this. So, uh, and then we'll go to Darren. So uh, this ending is very short. This is at 121c. So this is after Atlantis had become kind of polluted by this pursuit for wealth and material goods and discord had developed in the city. It says, but as Zeus, god of the gods, reigning as king according to law, could clearly see this state of affairs, he observed this noble race lying in this abject state and resolved to punish them and to make them more careful and harmonious as a result of their chastisement. To this end, he called all the gods to their most honored abode, which stands at the middle of the universe, and looks down upon all that has a share in generation. And when he gathered them together, he said, dot, dot, dot. And uh, again, you know, I have an image of a sphere here. This is my favorite cubit. Uh, but this is what this is what Timaeus has said, the universe is spherical, right? So uh, I would just remind people, as I've said before, and in this podcast, uh, the qubit, which is what the quantum computer will operate on is spherical. And the qubit is built on the quantum, which is the smallest amount of energy that can either be the cause or effect of physical change. So here, you know, we're kind of entangling with the very fundamental nature of the spherical universe, if the universe is in fact spherical, as Timaeus has explained. Now, you know, Timaeus has said that There can be nothing physical in the middle of that sphere. So that's the basis of some of maybe this thinking that the gods are in the middle of the sphere, the gods are not physical. So they're in this middle of of the sphere. So, and it says specifically here, this most honored abode, which stands at the middle of the universe. So in other words, at the middle of the sphere. So I just wanted to bring that in here. And again, remind us of, you know, this question of why this dialogue ends this way. Was it because Plato ran out of paper? uh, He ran out of time. The ending was lost. What's the reason for this? Or is it because he did not want to represent or didn't think that a human being could represent what the gods had said? Um, So I I wanted to bring that in there because you had talked about this idea of creating an image of the divine on earth. Um, So we'll go to Darren.
2: Okay. I'm going to try to very, very, very quickly respond to the previous discussion, and then I'll get to this ending here. So just um in, like, 20 seconds. Uh, so why are the Guardians, the Atlantis that was described, like, had a huge trading empire. Like, their ports were described as bustling day and night, and it created this cacophony. This is in the text. And it was described as having, like, 10,000, like, ridiculous number of ships. So, you know, maybe it's just to protect their trade and able empire, just to bring, you know, uh, modern geopolitics into the equation mm-hmm. you know because you have to protect all those trade routes and uh, yeah I, I really like james's point about um atlantis um yeah the guardians thing sounding like the republic and so it's how important and so and it reminds us that this dialogue is actually a follow-up to the timaeus which is a follow-up to the republic so it's important to read these as a continuity and not just focus on like one play text in isolation which too many people do and that leaves you to errors or problems in interpretation um and then but i also want to bring up the the statesman just um so maybe that's something to look at in the future the connection because the statesman apparently i think came is one of the last dialogues he wrote which is a get, return to politics and i really like we so we discussed the statesman and had discussions about how we can't create the first best on earth but we can create the second best so it's not the hopeless and so it's not like oh it's all up to the gods and so let's throw our hands in the air and we can't do anything. Everything's too vague and you know impressionistic. Um, it's like no, we actually we we can have some agency do something if we learn these lessons. But it's about creating the second best possibility. So that's also maybe something else to look at. All right, so back to to, to this ending now. <laughs> um, it, I mean, it's terribly ironic that you know this dialogue itself is like explicitly flagged as it well, well it well it's we, we understand it as, as a myth of Atlantis now. And, you know, it's terribly ironic that it happens that we lose <laughs> um, the, you know, we lose, you know, most of this dialogue or supposedly lose most of this dialogue. So, I mean, the, the irony makes me think that it might be intentional as James, you know, <laughs> uh, seems to think as well. Um, I mean, Steve said earlier that, you know, it was just like, it was just that we lost it, you know, things, it was th- the fact that it was collapsed just because we lost it. I'll just retort that um, Plato's dialogues leaving off in weird ways or suddenly cutting off is not unusual it's absolutely not unusual in Plato's dialogues the fact that they almost all end in Aporia inconclusively and, and not just inconclusively but leaving us with these like huge puzzles at the very end literally at the very end or even how Parmenides just sort of like it leaves off, right? And Socrates doesn't say anything at the end, so this is not a, unusual, so I can definitely see this as being intentional, but then what what would the lesson be? I think one there's so many things that could be said um uh, I' try to say this quickly um because we're at the end here. um so i I think it's interesting that this dialogue draws a contrast between the world the um the 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 necessary world or the intellectual world and the you know the world of becoming. And I think it's kind of interesting that the dialogue seems to end off right when we're getting to the world of becoming. So, like, I don't agree the previous stuff was like dramatic in the sense it was interesting. It's describing this giant continent and its proportions and how uh, powerful it was, but we didn't we didn't have story yet. Like, I meant it wasn't dramatic in the sense there wasn't much like there wasn't the action yet. And let's remember the action. It was specifically the reason why we went on the <laughs> the journey of the Timaeus and Critias in the first place because. The whole purpose of the timaeus and credia supposedly is to put the republic into motion into like what it would be like in the world of becoming and isn't it we a little bit convenient that the dialogue literally ends <clears throat> right when it's about to fulfill the promise <laughs> white when plots right when becoming is about to enter the picture you know the god was actually about to do something with this description because literally all we had up to now was description it was all description even even though if it was interesting and, and dramatic in the sense of being interesting but it wasn't dramatic in the sense of being narrative have having narrative or plot and and so anyway that just i i, I we're out of time but uh, yeah that's just i i'll just i'll just raise that as something to reflect on that it's, it's kind of curious that right when the beginning of like i guess the motion and time was beginning to enter the picture i mean the actual becoming of time then the dialogue cuts off literally right at that spot
0: Yeah, and that's a a good point. I mean, uh, it it makes me think that had they gone on uh, to talk about that, you know, what happens in the realm of becoming, they would have gone back to what they were talking about in the Republic. In other words, trying to build an idealized city based on this conception of what Zeus said should happen in the correct way. And then, you know, maybe that brings us then back to the beginning of this dialogue where Critias said, and this is what I read at the beginning, The success or failure of just about everything that is most important in our speech lies in the lap of this goddess memory. And so, if Plato were to have said what Zeus said, if Plato knew what Zeus said, if Plato had written that, then the question is is that memory reliable? And is the written word reliable without that great expansion on this whole? you know, what, what is the nature of Zeus? You know, what was going on in Zeus's mind that, you know, that, that cannot necessarily be rendered in in writing? I, I don't know. I, I think it's very consistent with what he said in the Phaedrus about the dangers of writing and what is said at the beginning of this dialogue about the nature of memory and how we can have memory of what a god said. So, yeah, very interesting. Very interesting. It's, it's a subject for a good debate. I, I personally think that uh, it was very intentional the way this ended, very intentional. Darren.
2: <laughs> oh, gosh. Um, yeah, this issue of um, memory and what we're supposed to. I mean, I-, I wonder if if maybe the dialogue ending this way, what is, is... I mean, I-, I think there's so many, re- I think everything um, that you mentioned and could be important parts of the reason or why it ends off there. I think there might be many different reasons you know there could be multiple reasons one is that another one might be that maybe plato had said all he wanted to say up to this point and like the memory yeah it's such an interesting theme because it's like we're supposed to only remember this stuff faintly and um but like the importance of remembering maybe like the dialogue is so plato said all he wanted to say and like what is necessary to remember is already in the Critias and the Timaeus. And like, we're just supposed to pick like as so many dialogues, uh, 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 like in so many dialogues and Socrates explicitly counsels in many dialogues, like, like the hippias major, remember this comes up often, pay attention to what is like said, like this is, um, and so maybe we have to remember the past. I mean, that's how we make the future better. That's how we can figure out what to do in the future. And yeah, like, I, I don't think it's, yeah, I don't know if it's completely hopeless. I'll I just, mm. r- r- just one last, oh, sorry, this, uh yeah, at the very end of the um, Timaeus, I, I found this really interesting theory about how um devices, like our lack of courage and whatever, our stupidity or forgetfulness, or he says reckless, recklessness and cowardice. So this is at 87 in the Timaeus is not like our own fault. He says here. It's because the our constitutions are bad. So bringing it back up to this issue here, this is at eighty-seven e. He talks about constitutions in the Timaeus. So he says, um, yeah, it's a it's because our constitutions are bad or bad forms of government or bad civic speeches are given. And of course, and earlier, just before the section above this, he talks about it. it people sometimes are like they seem to be evil, but it's they're not. They're just it's because of physical causes of their body. Like they can't help themselves. And he says at 87B, these things are completely beyond our control. But then he says that, but even so, so this is a hopeful note I was thinking about at the very end of eighty, yeah, 87B here. He says, even so, one should make every possible effort to flee from badness, whether with the help of one's upbringing or the pursuits of studies one undertakes and to seize its opposite. But that is a subject for another speech. Mm. <laughs> so he just leaves off. But it is flagging, though, that, OK, Athens declined. Atlantis declined. Um, they both declined, and we don't like we obviously we don't want to decline. But in the clues of what we can glean and what we can remember, and what Plato is helping us think about, reflect on, uh, maybe there are clues to what we can do now. And that was uh, that was actually a real concern of Plato, like of how to make Athens work at this time, which Mm -hmm. Athens, the real Athens at the time, was declining. Yeah, so maybe these are if you tie this in with this passage on constitutions in the Timaeus, maybe they're. Maybe these dialogues are clues of what we can still do um, that is in our control. Although he doesn't want us to blame people for their vices because it's all physical. Like Mm -hmm. it's physical or it's because they're upbringing
0: a constitution, but that that actually gives us clues to what we can do. So we're not helpless. Yeah. Yeah, And that's good. I mean, we have this human condition. It gives us a problem of of representation, but we also have the ability in us to find the path to the truth. And it makes me think of something that I think we mentioned a few times in our discussion of the Timaeus, which is the Mino in which Socrates said that all knowledge is recollection. And if we think of ourselves again in the middle of that spherical universe, um, as Timaeus said, the soul of the universe is in the middle of the universe. If We think of ourselves in the middle of that universe, we have the ability to recall everything in the spherical universe just by the nature of the geometry of the sphere the middle is the most powerful part. And so all knowledge is recollection. So to the extent that we can remember things, that's great. But we have to remember, too, that our memory is not perfect and it fades over time. But we have this power of, the soul has this power of recollection. And I think that's a really powerful thing. And when I look at this diagram of the qubit sphere, I think of myself in the middle of that qubit having the ability to recall everything that happens in that qubit. And that qubit is the object by which information transmits in the quantum computer. So we're getting down to the quantum level of the universe here. And I think that's very fundamentally related to what Taimea has said about the universe being spherical. So that is, we are out of time for today. And, but, you know, I, I really appreciate this discussion in conjunction with the Timaeus, where we did four sessions, and then also in conjunction with the Republic in season two, where we did six sessions on that. And it's really brought the whole three dialogues into a much clearer focus for me and really made, I think, especially powerful the statements about social constitutions. I think that's really, really important. You know, we can't take what Plato says, just in the Republic about social constitutions, we also have to look at the Timaeus, the Critias, the Statesman. There's a bunch of dialogues that we have to take. So reading the Republic in isolation, I don't think is going to get us where we need to be. So I'm really happy. I really think the Critias is powerful. I don't think it's a case of most of the dialogue having been left out. I think the dialogue is essentially here. It's a very compact, very beautiful presentation, I think, of the human condition and what we can do about it. So I wanted to thank everybody for being here and for being part of these discussions. A number of people have been with us as well for the Timaeus, which was great. And we've had a chance to tie a lot of stuff together here today. So I would invite anybody who wants to stay online for a casual half hour unrecorded discussion uh, to do so as I turn off the recording. But I will say that I think we'll now take a break for the Christmas break. We'll resume in January and I will announce what we'll look at at that point i haven't quite decided that yet but we will get into the laws i think we'll start the laws in february but in january we'll we'll start with another dialogue so i'll announce that later but in the meantime i wanted to wish everybody a great holiday and looking forward to our next discussion and
1: hope everybody can return for that in january